Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I, uh, texting is a way of life nowadays, right? Um, I will be the first to confess I don't do it well. Let me, I'm going sh- to pick on Leslie here for just a moment, actually. Uh, Leslie is our, our pianist up here. And uh, just last week, I, I got a text from her. My wife is, is leaning over my shoulder, just, you know, doing what she does. And I'm, re- I'm responding to, to Leslie's, uh, Leslie's question. I'm halfway through, and my wife goes, wow, she texts fast. As there was three paragraphs before I could even finish answering the first one. <laughs> I was like, Leslie, you're way too fast for me. <laughs> um, and it's funny, my, my daughter teases me about this too. I'll, I'll rib her, I'll give her a hard time about not using proper English on her text. Like, I like using capitalization and punctuation, you know, proper English. And uh, she'll, she'll give me that look like, Dad, you're old, because she uses none of that. And you know what? As much as I like to rib her about that, she's got a point. Uh, with her peers, the people that she communicates over text, they understand her perfectly fine. Really, what's important in communication? It's, it's, it's relating an idea to, um, to and fro, right? That's probably also not a phrase that she would use, to and fro. Anyways, I'm getting old. <laughs> um, it's not a phrase that she would use, but it's relevant for, uh, for her and her peers. Well, um, all across the country, our, our, our youth and all of us are using text, and it's actually all, all around the world. Um, in China, there are 355 million teenagers, million, that have embraced technology. Um, they've embraced texting. And as a matter of fact, um, you know how we use LOL and things like that in our text? Uh, they actually have a whole series of, of uh, numerical sequences they, they use to communicate ideas. For example, uh, let, me, let me show you this. This is, a, this is a, something you might find, it translated to English, but this is something you might find um, in a text amongst Chinese teenagers. Done with homework, so bored. What are you up to, 526? Me too, Burger Shack. That 526 means I'm hungry. This implies, what are you up to? Do you want to go get something to eat? It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, they've, they've, they've really established their whole, a whole new language that is relevant to them. Well, Coca-Cola um, in 2011 um, established a campaign called Share a Coke in, in China. And this campaign took off um, because it became both not only successful, but it became relevant to the, uh, to the Chinese teenager. For example, you'll, you'll see this. Um, the, uh, the, the last three bottles are just, uh, you know, they're just images, and we can figure out what those mean. But the first one, 2333, the second one, 521. The share a Coke idea was that if I have a bottle with 2333 on it, guess what? I give it to you. That means I'm having a good time with you. I'm enjoying laughing with you. I'm sharing a laugh with you, literally. 521, I love you. If I share a Coke with you, it means I love you. It's, it's, it's an ingenious way of doing things. And um, uh, the, uh, the marketing director, uh, Shelly Lin of Coca-Cola China, um, said this about Coca-Cola's uh, successful campaign. Nowadays in China, teens are using modern communication that is more than language. They, they've created a whole lot of new ways to express themselves. We thought, as in Coca-Cola, that we can build a meaningful conversation with millennials by speaking their language instead of just borrowing icons that are already there. Interesting. The campaign's been so successful that the most popular drink in China is still Sprite. Really, it's the most popular soft drink in China. 
Coke is number two. And it started off real low because no one understood it. Now, in any of this, did I imply at all that Coca-Cola changed its recipe, that they changed its product? No, Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola. We've all had one probably. Coca-Cola didn't change. But the way they marketed it, the way they advertised it to the teenagers in China made it relevant and made it popular because it wasn't just drink our Coke because we ask you to. It was drink our Coke because you can share it with others. And it was, very, it was a very popular idea. My question for you is, in the same way, how has the church maintained relevancy in the world? Well, this topic of relevancy is, is kind of a thorny one, and it, it, it's been a thorny one since the, since the very beginning. You see, in the early church, um, the, the, the church was still trying to understand what, what it all meant to be saved by Christ. Uh, do, we, do we need to follow the, the law of Moses? Um, do we, uh, how does Christ fit into all this? Um, and to, to them, um, uh, the law was something that a lot, of, a lot of the early church still adhered to because it was part of the culture, it made sense, um, and they were used to it. Um, well, it wasn't for a while that Paul would come on the scene and let the church know that, hey, hey, the law of Moses will not save you. The law of Moses can only condemn you. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, the law says, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. We all know we're not perfect. If you fail in one, you're not perfect. The only way to make up for it was by ritual sacrifice. Well, this idea that the law will not save you, it, was, it wasn't really understood all that well. Um, but before Paul, Peter actually had these, the beginnings of an inkling that, you know, we need to, we need to be able to reach out to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, um, in a way that, that, they're, that they're okay with, that they're comfortable with, that they can relate to us with. Um, and so in Acts 11, uh, Paul actually, no, sorry, not Paul, Peter actually reaches out um, and he, he starts eating with Gentiles, these uncircumcised people. That was the word that was used. They were uncircumcised, they were unclean. His church, the church at, at, at large, criticized him. What are you doing? The law says we are not to do this. And, well, Peter defended his actions as this is, this is where God wants us to go. Um, I'd like to pause and just remind us real quick about the law of Moses. It gave the Jews their identity. It wasn't just how they lived their lives. It was how they identified themselves. To be a Jew meant to be a follower of the law. It was what was holy. It set them apart from everyone else. There was Gentile and there was Jew. I mean, seriously, that was, that was, that was it for them. Um, the only way to make up for breaking the law was ritual sacrifice, as we mentioned, um, but with this in mind, you would think that even if it didn't matter the rule required a sacrifice if you broke it, you would think that everything would be upheld equally. Well, as I think as we can see in, in our, our own culture here, there are some things we consider more important than, than others. <laughs> Same thing with them. This idea of circumcision, that was a scapegoat for the church. It was a way, it was something to rally around, uh, something to, to say, hey, I am a true believer because I adhere to the law. Peter Peter said, uh-uh, nope. He actually went so far as to call circumcision a yoke around the neck, something that was unbearable. Um, we can see this in Acts uh, chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. 
Peter says, says this exactly, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. And He makes no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You see, that's by faith, not by circumcision. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter was making a point. Peter, a natural-born Jew, um, steeped in Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, realized that not everything we hold dear about our culture is necessary to reach the world for Christ. The trappings of convention, they're, they're human additions to what God has laid down. And as human additions, honestly, they're irrelevant. They're irrelevant to the core of the gospel. And if that's true, then I have to look at my own habits. What, what are those things that I hold dear? And I have to ask myself, what can be pushed aside so that the message of the gospel can be heard loud and clear? I'll admit, I can't say it any better than Paul. Would you please stand with me as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became one as under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but, not under the, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in his blessings. Please be seated. To maybe put it in a better context, I'd like to share with you a story. Um, as some of you know, I, I, I studied the martial arts for about 20 years. And um, in, that, in that time, um, well, I touched the lives of a, of a, lot, of, a lot of people. Um, in that time, I, I, earned, um, I earned my second degree black belt. Um, I actually ran my own school for a couple of years, not something I, I uh, uh, well, I, <laughs> sorry, never mind. Um, running a school was fun. Uh, but in that time, I, I ran, I, I touched a lot of lives, probably thousands, and I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of children's lives, hundreds of adult lives. Some of those stayed with me for a month. Some of them stayed with me for years. Some of them I still talk to today. I still, I still am in touch with them. The core of what I learned and what I taught never changed. After all, a punch is a punch is a punch. A kick is a kick is a kick. I'm not going to jump off the stage, I promise. <laughs> um, a block is a block is a block. The core of the martial arts never changes. But how I taught it had to change based on my audience. Let's make this interactive for just a moment. No, I'm not going to have you punch each other, I promise. I just lift a hand. I don't care which hand. It doesn't matter. Lift a hand. All right. Now, look at your palm. All right. Keep your thumb out. 
but make a fist. Just roll, just roll your fingers in, and then curl your thumb, uh, just re really nestle it into that first knuckle. That's a fist, right? That's a fist, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guarantee you this is not a fist you want to hit somebody with. You'll hurt yourself. You'll do more damage to yourself than anyone else. This fist is loose. It's not a good fist. Lift up your hands again. Let me show you a good fist and have you do it. This time, instead of rolling all the fingers together, start with your pinky. Roll the pinky and make it the tightest part of the fist, the tightest part. Put your thumb in, but maintain that focus on the pinky. If you maintain focus on the pinky, make it the tightest spot, that fist will be more powerful than anything else. Powerful. And that's the entire point. You can let it go if your circulation is going, ah. Yeah, that's the entire point, is when you, is in, the, in the martial arts, when you strike, you want to strike with something as hard as possible. A loose fist, that energy is going to go back into your wrist, and you'll probably break your hand. With a tight fist, however, there's a lot of things you can punch through. So, um, as you can imagine, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to teach that. I mean, for, uh, like just, just then, we had one example. But maybe some of you were like, yeah, that makes no sense to me. Um, can you explain that to me a little better? Or can you show that to me in a different way? Or can I just try that on my own for a little while? You know, everyone has different ways of learning. And as a teacher, you have to be able to be flexible to that. You have to be. Um, uh, an example of the, uh, they being flexible is my students, I could break up into three general categories, children, adults, and then the experienced, okay? Children, um, how, just out of curiosity, how many uh, school teachers do we have in the room? Okay, um, there we go, another, another one. Um, would you agree with me that school, that school kids, their attention span isn't the greatest? <laughs> There's a lot of squirrel action going on there. Exactly. So in those classes, I had to keep them high energy. I had to, there was a lot, of, a lot of shouting, not at the kids, but just shouting to keep the energy level up. A lot of moving around quickly. If I spent any time, any, any, any time really on one student, I would lose the rest of the class, and it's day over at that point. <laughs> well, adults, I could take things a little slower. I still had to make it fun because they're, they're learning something they're not comfortable with, but I could take it a little slower. I had to be more encouraging than I did loud. And then... Uh, with the experience, they'd been through, they'd been, they'd been in it for several years already. With the experience, I could get a lot quieter, a lot slower, and my job was to really pick apart the minutia of their techniques. That was, that was what, is, what was expected at that point. Um, but no matter what I did or how I taught it, the martial arts is the martial arts. It has, it, it, I can't change the core of it and still keep it effective, still keep it practical. But I did have to change how I taught it to keep it relevant to my audience. Did I lose you already? <laughs> so, this idea of relevancy. You might be wondering, how is relevancy, well, relevant to the church? Before I answer that, let me ask you this question. How many of you, and this is, this is a hard question, how many of you can concretely say you've had a hand in bringing someone to Christ. I, I don't want your hand raised. This really isn't a time to brag. It's just, it's a time for, for honesty. How many of you think to yourself, have I, how, many, how many people have I had a hand in bringing to Christ? Well, the reason I ask this is um, there's a couple slides I want to show you. Um, this first one is a Pew study done in July of two, uh, 2020, so pretty recent. According to this Pew study, only 44% of Americans think it's necessary to believe in God 
to be moral and have good values. Only 44, that's less than half of the country feels that you need to believe in a God. Not even go to church, just believe in a God. That God is the source of morality. Okay, next slide. This one, about five years, five years earlier, but kind of, it kind of shows the same picture from a different perspective. This one says 20% of Protestants, that's us, okay? 20% of Protestants are highly engaged in church. 61% are moderately engaged in church. And 19 are minimally engaged. Now, before you say, well, okay, 20% of the church is engaged. That's not bad, right? The definition of engaged here, highly engaged, it means that you come every Sunday to church. It doesn't mean you do anything. It doesn't mean you're, you're a volunteer. It doesn't mean you, you participate. It just means you come. Minimally engaged are those folks who maybe, maybe come on, on Easter and Christmas. And then the moderately engaged are somewhere in between. They're, they're not consistent with their attendance, let alone do they actually serve. Then you have this next slide. So this next slide is interesting. It shows this is the percentage of Americans that either go to church or consider themselves Christian. They would call themselves Christian. And it's done by age range. You have the silent generation, and 84% of them would identify as Christian. Baby boomers, 1946 to 64, 76%. Generation X, that's my generation, 67%. Millennials, my children's generation, only 49% would identify as Christian. What's going on here? What's going on here? The church used to be at the forefront of culture. It was the church that drove science. It was the church that drove medicine. It was the church that drove music. What's happened? I mean, nowadays, it seems like the church is just struggling to play catch-up. And that's if the particular church body we're talking about even cares about the world, is even, even bothered by it at all. The, these numbers show us that the church has ceased to be relevant. I know that's a, that's a, that's a scary thing to say. It, don't mistake me. I'm not saying the gospel is irrelevant. I'm not saying that at all. The gospel will always remain relevant. The core of our message is always relevant. But the church, or rather how we do church, has become irrelevant. We, and I, I'm including myself in this, guys, we have stopped being relevant. The church is fading away in the U.S., and it's, it's doing so quickly. As a matter of fact, let me put this in, uh, I'm going to give you some more numbers. It's estimated by the Religion News website that as many as 7,700, 7,700 Protestant churches will close their doors this year. 7,700. Okay, I, I admit, that's a, that's a kind of a number, that's a big enough number that I, that even I, I'm like, I don't really understand that. Let's put it in perspective. That means 150 congregations a week will no longer be going to church in that building. 150 per week. What happened? Well, there's this word called complacency uh, that I want to talk about. Now, I, I, I know a lot of people can point to COVID. COVID. COVID has done a lot of damage the worldwide over, and the church is included. The church is not immune to COVID. Um, but we cannot lay uh, the church's decline at the feet of COVID. It absolutely may have accelerated the process temporarily, uh, 
But it, it, it didn't start it, guys. If, we, if we're being honest with ourselves, looking at those numbers earlier, it didn't start it. No, I think it might be, might be better to look at, at um, our human nature. It's talking about complacency. It's an issue that has been man with from the very beginning. You see, comfort is good. Comfort's safe. Comfort doesn't challenge us. Who can blame us? Well, we see that God has a word about complacency in Amos chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Let me, let me make sure that we understand what complacency actually is. It's not just being lazy. It's not, it's not just, I want to do my own thing, okay? Complacency, according to Merriam-Webster, is defined as self-satisfaction especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers and differences. It's not caring about the world, especially when the world is dying around you. That's complacency, guys. It's like the rich man. It's like the rich man who would not see beyond his feast to the starving Lazarus at his very door. It's a form of denial. Lazarus was still there whether or not the rich man took notice of him. Well, what about us? Here we get to the not popular part of my sermon. Do we spend most of our time and money on our own desires? Are we rich in what matters to God or just in what keeps us comfortable? Are we even aware of others? Does the moral collapse of our country bother us? What are we more upset about, that our children do not know God or that our favorite sports team did not win? What makes us passionate and mournful that 50 million children have been killed through abortion or that we didn't get our way today? Scripture says, woe to the complacent. I agree with that. Woe be to those whose life amounts to little more than pleasing themselves and, leaving, and living insular lives, insular lives amongst their toys. I once heard a, a story, you, you probably heard it too. So, young man, his car broke down, uh, he brings it into the mechanic. And the uh, mechanic looks at it, comes back a little while later, says, all right, here's what's wrong with it, here's what I can do to get it fixing right now, but you, you really need to get the rest of this looked at. The young man looks at the invoice and goes, I, I, I can't do that right now, that's just too much, I don't have the money. Well, as they're talking about this, someone else's car comes rumbling in, spewing antifreeze and oil all over the place, smoke billowing out from underneath the hood. Uh, obviously, this car is done. The mechanic looks at the boy and says, well, you can either pay for it now, or you will pay for it later. Heard that story a while ago. You see, life has a funny way of closing in on the complacent, for the world they ignored does not get better magically. So let's look back on, on what we've talked about. We, we, we've talked about Peter. Peter got in, into hot water. He got in trouble because he was engaging with others. 
Paul in the Scripture talks about how he's engaging with others. And in the verse in Amos said, it, it talked about how we as individuals ignore others. What's the pattern here? Well, we see that it's, it's, it's about others. It's always about others. Peter and Paul, we can hold up as examples. They were engaging positively with others. And the Scripture in Amos says, you're not. And whoa, <laughs> whoa. You might ask, you might ask, and I just want to clarify this. Aren't we to make ourselves holy as in set apart from the world? Yes, but I'm going to argue not at the expense of someone else's soul. Now, before that gets misinterpreted, I'm not saying it's either or. Either, either be part of the world or someone's, someone's going to uh, perish. I'm not, I'm not saying an either or. I'm actually going to reflect what Christ said. Christ uh, said in John 17, verses 16 through 18, this is Christ speaking. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's, he's praying to, his, to the Father. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Who's that them? It's you. It's all of us. For quite some time now, the church has had this attitude, and I'm going to steal a movie reference here. You'll probably recognize it. If we build it, they will come. You know what? And I, looking around Chattanooga, I would say that that was probably at one point very true. I mean, look at Chattanooga. This entire area, the most churched area in the country, right? Everyone was going to church at one time. Everyone was. But is it? Is the church building the invitation that it used to be? It's not, and I hate to say it. It's sad to say. But the church building is not the invitation it used to be. It's not the invitation we would like it to be. We... There's, there's a saying I really like. It's part of, it's one of my life, life uh, sayings. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. We have a powerful knowledge, right? I could probably point to somebody and you could tell me, a powerful knowledge is the gospel. It is the life that Christ offers through salvation. Yet if we don't get involved with someone else's life, do they want to hear that from us? Do they care? No, because we don't care about them, Obviously. Why would they care about us? It becomes a vicious circle. We have to care about others if we want this, this message, the gospel, to impact their lives. There's an interesting study done, um, a study on, uh, on uh, the benefits of charitable work. Let me read these to you. Uh, and this study was done by Gene Siegel and uh, Lawrence Robinson in 2020. So again, really recent. Number, the one, number one benefit of charitable work Volunteering connects you to others. Number two, volunteering is good for your mind and body. Number three, volunteering can advance your career. Number four, volunteering brings fun and fulfillment to your life. This sounds awesome. This sounds really good. Except how many of those bullets are about me rather than others? This world is so focused on charitable work for others because of what it can do for you that we realize, or we, we don't realize that although charitable work may be noble, it kind of loses its shine when it's done selfishly, when it's about me and what I get out of it, not really about what you, as in the other person I'm serving, is, is 
being ministered about. Is it about self-gratification? I think we can consistently see throughout the Bible. We are not called to gratify ourselves. We are called to be servants to others. Does that necessarily mean, am I trying to say that, uh, that you should put yourself in harm's way to serve someone else? Not necessarily. There may be time for it, but not necessarily. I'm not saying, you know, jump out in front of a car to, to minister to somebody. And I'm absolutely not saying you should neglect your, your family to minister to somebody else. What I am suggesting is that we treat others with the same love you would treat your own little child. And I'm using that word, child, intentionally. You see, children don't know any better. Make sense? Children don't know any better. So we might, we might ask, okay, where do we start? You know, the world is so complex and it's moving so fast. It's kind of hard to determine, well, how to reach out to people. Sometimes it's really hard to determine who to reach out to. I'm going to say in that last one, who to reach out to, don't worry about that. God will put people in your lives that he wants to put in your lives. Let him do that work. But let's talk about how. Actually, before we even do that, let's talk about, well, what are we going to say first? What is our message? Instead of asking ourselves how, let's ask, let's ask ourselves what do we need to say. And I'm going to give you some advice. Take everything you hold dear. Everything you hold dear. It means, means a lot to you. Those things that you want to share with others. Everything you believe they need to know and then boil it down to what is essential. In other words, in other words, ask yourself, what am I willing to die to impart to others? What do I have to say that is so important I would be at peace dying about to share with others? That's pretty, that's pretty brutal, but it's absolutely true. Everything else, and I mean everything else, is mere discussion. You can, you can absolutely talk about anything you want, but what is essential? Everything else is mere discussion, and it should no, in no way become an obstacle for someone else. Of course, this does mean, mean we need to ask ourselves a very important question. We might need to ask ourselves a painful question, what do we value? And be honest. And that now, there might be some education there as we get honest with ourselves and what do I value? A uh, professor of mine once said, an easy, way, an easy way to find out what you value, look at your checkbook. What do you spend your money on? Guys, I love Legos. I love Legos. You see my office? I got Legos, Star Wars Legos in my office. I love Legos. I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, okay? I, I have my toys. I love them. Literally, in my case, Legos, toys. Um, but what in, your, what in your life maybe do you spend a little too much attention on? All right. Where do we go from here? Well, um, with the great commandment, we understand that we're, we're ready to go. We're ready to go out there as Christ commandment, commanded. Uh, we also have a handle on what is essential. Well, 
how do we do it? Well, we, act, we, we did kind of touch on this earlier, but let's, let's look at how Jesus did it. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Alphaeus, rose and followed him. And as they reclined at, at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating, Christ was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Get out there. Get out in our community. We all need to get out in the community. We all need to answer that question for ourselves. Who do I reach out to? What do I say? And I would encourage you, not only just get out there, but make friends. We're talking about being relevant to somebody else. Make them laugh. When you make somebody else, when, when you laugh together, isn't there like an instant bond? There's something you both agree on that's funny. It's an instant foundation you can build upon. And then as Samantha was saying earlier, once you've built that foundation, her with socks, you can, you, the, the topic of Christ can then easily be entered through first. Okay, it can, you, can, you can bring in the topic of, of Christ uh, versus I want to talk to you about Christ and the person goes, whoa, 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 we're not that close yet. <laughs> okay? Get, make them laugh. Will it take away time from your personal life? Yep. Will it take away time from your family life? Yes, it will, guys. Will it cost? Will it require sacrifice? I, absolutely. I'm not here to tell you that this is easy. I'm not at all here to tell you it's easy. Let me ask you another question. What would you rather on your tombstone? He was a good Christian. Or, he was a friend in the truest sense of the word. Which one of those two implies they had a life full of connections? Still, you might say, I don't know where to start. Who should I approach? Well, there's a lot of variables to that question, but we go back to the spheres of influences I was talking about. You have people within your spheres of influence. Okay? God has put them there. Uh, your postman, the people you talk to at the grocery store, uh, the, the, the friends you make that are friends of friends of friends. These people are, are, are those people you need to reach out to, but you have to be intentional. You cannot wait for them to come to this building. I'm grateful when somebody does, but the majority as we saw in the numbers, are not going to. So establish a relationship with them. Now, I know a lot of you, a lot of you are like, well, I have some good ideas, but I don't know how to implement them, and I don't really want to do it by myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you. I mean, this is dangerous. Brian might kill me for this. <laughs> this is dangerous. Take your ideas and bring them to us, your pastoral staff. Here's the catch. Bring them with a plan. Don't just say, hey, I think this would be a good idea. Okay, well, how, how are we going to do it? And who's going to be in charge? 
doesn't have to be your pastoral staff. You can be in charge. You can plan it. You can get other people excited to do it. It doesn't have to be your pastoral staff. As a matter of fact, I, I, I can guarantee you right now, we can't do it all. We cannot lift the load. Christ said it himself. The workers are few, but the harvest is full, right? The world is different now than it was today, than it was yesterday, I'm sorry. We have to avoid simply repeating what's, what, what we did in the past. We have to, we can take those ideas, the core of that idea, and say, well, how can we repackage it today to make it relevant to our current generation, to the current people? You see, the Bible is one forward-moving story. The Jews forgot that, and they focused on the past, and as long as they adhered to the past, they were good, and Christ blew that out of the water. The Bible, if you read it from Genesis all over to the end, is a forward-looking story. It's, it's looking forward to Jesus. It's looking forward to that hope and that glory and the future. As we close today, I want to share with you just a, uh, a story of a friend of mine. I'm not going to tell you his name because there was a lot of pain in the story, and um, I don't want to revisit upon him. But he was, a, uh, he, he was serving at the same church I was, I was at. He was even in the orchestra with me. He was a service member. He was 15 years younger than me, and he was kind of standoffish. I didn't really get to know him because he was standoffish, and honestly, I was comfortable where I was, and I didn't need anybody else in my life, right? And so, I, you know, he did his thing. I did mine. It was fine. I went to another church. I started serving at another church, and I found out that this young man, he was engaged. His fiance broke up with him. He, she broke it off. Now, a service member at a church, any church, he's the outsider because he's probably not from that church. He didn't grow up there, which meant that everybody in that church was on her side. It, not that it was a bad breakup or anything like that, but he was the outsider. Everybody was going to rush to come for her because they knew her. This boy was alone. I didn't know him at all. I mean, I, I, again, I knew of him, but I didn't really know him. Yet there, that still small voice inside of me said, Foster, in fact, it, it screamed to me, you need to reach out to this boy. You need to reach out to this kid. <sighs> okay, so I did. I invited him into my home, invited him to Thanksgiving. I invited him to the games that we played uh, as a family with my friends. And in so doing, I invited myself into his life. What was really interesting, what was really interesting, was months later, he started to kind of warm up to us. We started to understand his sense of humor. Uh, we started to really appreciate him. And I, he appreciated us, obviously. Um, but he shared with me something. He said that, Foster, I don't know why you called me that day. But if, but if you hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. And he didn't mean in a general sense. He was seriously contemplating suicide. Because I reached out to him, because I took the chance of getting rejected, I became relevant to him. That's all I'm saying. Just get out and know people. Be relevant to them. You don't even, I, I still don't have anything in common with this guy. Seriously, I don't. Yet, I talk to him a lot because we love each other. We are relevant to each other. And so, 
That's all that's necessary. That's all, that's all we need. So as the, as the band comes back up, I want you to, I, I want you to think about this message of, of relevancy. I, what, can, what can you do in your sphere that will make yourself relevant to other people? And again, what I mean by that is how do you show other people you care? Not just, oh, how are you doing? Not like that. But hey, I don't know who you are, but my wife makes a mean turkey at Thanksgiving. You want to come over and share it with us? And I, we got a bunch of board games. We, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll pass around some jokes. It'll be fun. I'd love, to, love for you to be a part of it. And then not only in Thanksgiving, a couple days later, invite them back again. Not just for Thanksgiving, so it's not just a special event. This is just being part of my life. I'd ask you to pray with me and reflect on this as, as we close. Lord, Lord, I ask. I, I, first of all, Lord, I thank you so much for, for bringing us here today, Lord, to, 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 hear, to hear from your word, to hear your message. Lord, I, I ask that, that you lay this on our hearts that being complacent is not your ideal for us. You want what is best for us. And in so doing, you want what is best for all of us, all of your children. Lord, you, you are the great provider. In our, in our weakness, in our, our lack of courage, our lack of even knowing what to say, you will provide the strength that we need to serve, serve others and to serve you. Lord, give us, give us the, the knowledge, the confidence, the power to serve you daily. Lord, we thank you for being our God. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.